to, we're in the middle of the second paragraph of Shema. And uh, not last week and not the week before, but uh, three weeks ago, what we were discussing is the middle of the second paragraph. We were talking about the idea of, as Rav Schwab put it in a very nice way, that the precipitation cycle, right, that we look at as the precipitation, which is the evaporation, and then the condensation, and then the precipitation, was really a stand-in, right, or for the entire idea of everything that we daven for in this world, right? The idea of saying that something comes from below and it awakens or evokes a response from above. <laughs> All right, so sometimes... And that's true. That is true about the situation when we have rain coming, right? That the rain comes from below. It, it evaporates from below and then it comes down from above. That is true about rain. And it's true about tefillah in general, that through our prayers, we get a response from Hashem. And that response from Hashem is what, is what we're really asking for, what we're hoping for. Now, that's true about rain, but rain is really synonymous with almost everything that we receive in terms of sustenance. In the Daf Yomi right now, what we're studying is Masechet Ta'anit, Masechet Ta'anit, which is about the laws of fasting. But what it begins with is talking about rain. And when it says something very unique about rain, rain is one of the three things for which God does not give over the key to any angel, to any intermediary. God interacts with the rain directly choosing how rain falls for all of us. And the Talmud says, well, what about sustenance? Doesn't God retain the rights to sustenance for everyone directly as opposed to using an intermediary? Which is a very complicated idea. I don't want to try to discuss that today. That's a complicated idea. But the idea being the Gemara says, rain is synonymous with sustenance in general, okay? So rain is really just the stand-in for sustenance. We think of rain as being a natural process, but rain itself is also God choosing to step in and grant us the tremendous gift of rain, right? Right now in Israel, I think it hasn't rained for 30 days since when they started praying for rain and people are calling for mass, uh, mass prayers, right? so that there'll be rain in Israel, right? Israel, as we know, is a land that the rain is, is not assured, right? And without the rain, it's very difficult to get enough, um, to get enough liquid, to get enough water for the entire country. So they're starting to daven now in Israel, you know, mass prayers. So we start talking about the fact that Hashem will provide rain for your land in its proper time, the early and late rain, right? That's what we say in the second paragraph. Now, this idea that rain is something that we focus on immediately, right? The first thing that we focus on is if we do all the mitzvot and we love Hashem and we serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, then he will provide rain. Rain like, seems like a little bit of a funny example, right? So rain is really synonymous with all of the sustenance that Hashem provides for us. And that's what we focused on last time. Now let's get up to the next part. It says that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. It says, V'yasavta diganecha v'sireshcha v'yitzharecha. V'yasavta, and you shall gather in. Diganecha, dagan is grain. Diganecha, with the cha at the end, makes it your grain. V'tiroshcha, tirosh is juice from grapes, right? Wine. V'yitzharecha means the, the oil from olives, okay? So this idea that we're going to talk about today is that then you'll have the ability to gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. So initially, what we're saying in Shema, we are talking in the plural. We say that Hashem has commanded us today, right? Or commanded you today 
is plural, the entire community. Your grain is singular. It should say, It doesn't say that. If it had a, a end of mem, a mem sofit at the end, it would be plural, but it's not. It has a chaf, and therefore it's singular. Why does it change? Why does it change from the plural to the singular? So Rav Schwab points out, and I think it's a, it really, it's a beautiful idea, and it's very clear that this is correct. I'm going to share my screen so everyone can see the, the source sheet. So this is really, the reason why is because the idea of the relationship between how much effort we put in and how much results we get and how much Hashem is going to play a role in the results that we get is very much individualistic. That is not going to be the same for all of us, right? Some of us will put in more effort and receive less results. Some of us will put in less effort and receive more results. So when you talk about, uh, you can't say on a completely universal basis that Hashem is going to provide on the same level. So it's not going to be on the same level. This problem, right, a problem or a dilemma, however you want to discuss it, right? The fact that we all work, the fact that we all try to make a living, but yet we believe that Hashem is going to provide for us, right? So why do we have to work at all? Maybe we shouldn't work at all. Maybe it should be go back to the desert, right? Where we didn't have to do anything and Hashem just provided everything for us, right? Or maybe we should, we kind of almost disregard the role of God in providing for us. So in Israel right now, it's a little bit harder to disregard that because we're in the middle of the Shemitah cycle. We're in the middle of the seventh year, right? And if you see what's going on, that a farmer is just completely giving up his ability to make a living during this year and just relying on Hashem, that really does help us strengthen our emuna, right? And that's really what the Torah says, that the Shemitah year is all about, is all about strengthening emuna. It's about strengthening their belief that Hashem provides. And in America, we don't have the Shemitah, but what we do have is we have Shabbos. Once a week, we, we rest completely from Shabbos and we don't have to do any work at all. And that helps us, helps remind us that Hashem is really in charge of the results, right? The idea that we don't have to work on Shabbos, by the way, some of you might even remember, this is somewhat of a new idea, right? Rabbi, Rabbi Pupko was speaking at his son's bris and he mentioned that his grandfather moved to Pittsburgh in 1941. And in 1941, he was the rabbi of the Orthodox Synagogue and in the Orthodox synagogue, they had an early morning Shabbat service. Why was it an early morning Shabbat service? Because they would come to pray and they would pray properly. And then immediately afterwards, they would go to work. These were Orthodox men who were coming to pray Shabbat morning. But if you didn't go to work, you weren't going to make a living. We are not condoning this behavior. It's not, it's not an okay response, right? Uh, I have in my family um, and, and Leah has in her family, you know, family stories about how our great-grandparents, both of our examples, how they both lost their jobs every single Friday, right? Because they refused to work on Shabbos, right? Until they, until they finally found some level of uh, independence. But the idea that today in America, we do have the luxury, you know, they, they repealed some of the blue laws and they, they made Shabbos observance, the idea of saying I'm Shabbos observant and I cannot work on Saturday, that that is enshrined, right? The religious liberty, that's amazing. That's fantastic. But what it does is it allows us to recognize the hand that Hashem plays in what we receive. But this dilemma, how much work are we supposed to put in and how much is just going to come directly from God, right? We call this in Hebrew, we call it the, the, uh, the paradigm of the emuna. I'm sorry, not emuna. bitachon, belief in a, on a daily basis that I'm going to receive what I need. And also the 
Hishtadlut. Hishtadlut means effort, labor. So we put in a certain amount of effort, there will be results. What the results will look like is not always dependent on our effort. <clears throat> the way that we understand this is the way the world works, and this is really based on a, uh, a seminal essay from the Ramban, from Nachmanides. He says, you know, when you look at what happens in the desert and the manna is falling, right? The man falls for 40 years. Like incredible. Can you imagine man falling? Every day you just go outside and you have exactly what you need. It just fell from the heaven directly to where you needed it, right? Can you imagine if uh, you woke up in the morning and uh, you come downstairs and there's, there's waffles already made for you. Who made it? Nobody made it. It just fell from the heaven, right? And it's time to eat dinner. And there's steak, potatoes, asparagus just sitting there all ready for you. Nobody had to make it. Nobody had to order takeout. It's done. It's already done, right? It'd be crazy. It fell from the heaven. Absolutely absurd. A miracle, right? The Ramban says, wait, what about rain? Water falls from heaven. Why isn't that a miracle? And so the Ramban says, I understand what you're going to say. What you're going to say is, well, I, I can actually explain on a natural level. I could explain the process, how it happens, that the rain falls from the heaven. The Ramban says, foolish child, that's also Hashem. Hashem made a world in which you have an explanation for how he gives you the rain when you need it. He did not make a world in which you have an explanation for all sustenance falling from the heaven. But in truth, everything is really Hashem. That being said, well, then why do we have to work at all? Why can't I just say, I believe, and everything will come exactly when we need it, right? The answer is that we're not on that level. We're not on that level where we have such a high level of faith that we don't have to work at all and our sustenance is assured, okay? Where do we draw the line of how much effort and how much do I believe that God is going to provide? Where is that? Where do we meet? Like, where does that idea, where do you say, well, I don't have to work that hard, right? And we think we all hopefully sometimes make the decision of the I'm going to do the best that I can. The rest is in the hands of Hashem. Where exactly do we draw that line? That's a difficult question. The Talmud deals with this problem. Let's look at source number one. Rabbi Hanina Bar Papa raised the contradiction. It is written. I will take back my grain at its time and wine in its season. This is Hosea 2.11. And it is written in Shema. And you shall gather your grain, your wine, and your oil. To whom does the grain belong? To God or to the people? In the one place it says, I will take back my grain. In other words, God is speaking about the grain. He says it's his grain. In the other place it says, God is speaking to us and says, your grain. Whose is it? Is it God's or the people? The Gemara responds, this is not difficult. Here, where God promises Israel that they will gather their grain, the verse refers to a time when they perform God's will. Here, where the verse indicates that the grain belongs to God, it refers to a time when they do not perform God's will, as then he will take back the grain, demonstrating that it belongs to him. The sages taught, what is the meaning of that which the verse states, and you shall gather your grain, right? It says, and you shall gather your grain. The Gemara is asking a question, and the question is like this. It says that you shall gather your grain, indicating that we play a role in providing our own sustenance, right? Which we all know, of course, we play a role in providing our own sustenance, right? The problem is like this. It is stated in Joshua 1.8, this Torah shall not depart from your mouths, and you shall contemplate in it day and night. What would be the implication of that phrase? The implication is you should learn Torah the entire day. Go earn a living? Who has to earn a living? Go learn Torah the entire day. Go be like the, the men in Israel who don't earn a living who are, what we do is they sit in yeshiva the whole day, right? 
and everybody complains about them, but seemingly the Torah says this is good, this is what they should do. I might have thought that these matters are to be understood as they are written. One is to literally spend his days immersed exclusively in Torah study. Therefore, the verse states, and you shall gather your grain, your wine, and your oil. Assume in their regard the way of the world. Set aside time, not only for Torah, but also for work. This is the statement of Rabbi Yishmael. In other words, <clears throat> Rabbi Yishmael says the fact that one place in the Torah it says, you, you, Torah should not depart from your mouths, and another place in the Torah it says, but you should gather in your grain, indicates that indeed there is a, a balance that has to be struck between these two, these two uh, you know, um, differing or opposing, opposing responsibilities. Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai says, is it possible that a person plows in the plowing season and sows in the sowing season and harvests in the harvest season and threshes in the threshing season and winnows in the windy season as grain is separated from the shaft by means of the wind and is constantly busy? What will become of the Torah? Right? In other words, it's easy for Rabbi Yishmael to say, listen, you have to be very balanced and set aside some part of your day for spiritual pursuits and some part of your day for physical pursuits, for material pursuits. Rabbi Shimon Yechai says it's not really possible. We know what happens. People end up getting very caught up in their, in their physical material pursuits, and they don't have time to, to, to study Torah. They don't have time to do the mitzvot. Rather, one must dedicate himself exclusively to Torah at the expense of other endeavors. As when Israel performs God's will, their work is performed by others, as it stated, and strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and your vine dressers. This is Isaiah 61.5, speaking about what will happen when the Messiah comes. So Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai says, listen, God can take care of us whether we're working in the physical realm or not. Even if we're not working in the physical realm, if we're doing the proper deeds, the proper avoda, the proper service that we're supposed to be doing, God will take care of us. So you don't have to do it. Learn Torah the entire day. That's what Shimon Yechai's opinion. Moreover, if Israel fails to perform God's will, others' work will be performed by them. As it is stated, you shall serve your enemy whom God shall send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and in want of all things. In other words, Shimon Yechai says like this. You have two choices in life, right? He's very uh, stark, right? It's very black and white in Shimon Yechai's paradigm. Either you spend your life dedicated to learning Torah, and when you reach such a high level, you know what will happen? The work will be taken care of. God will provide. Or you spend your life working and working and working, and then you don't end up doing God's will. Because if you don't learn Torah, you will not do the right thing. And if you don't do the right thing, you'll end up doing work for others. So you think you're going to get ahead in life. You're going to pad your retirement account by working really hard. But unfortunately, sometimes what happens is you completely, completely disregard spiritual pursuits. And what happens is you leave behind anything related to the Torah and you end up sometimes slipping and not getting involved in doing mitzvahs. And we'll end up having is you'll bring the curse, the curse that you're going to have to work way harder. You're not going to get anything. You're going to be working, 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 and you're not going to have anything. Those are the two options in Rosh Hashanah worldview. And therefore, he says, learn Torah, pursue the spiritual. God will take care of the rest. Which one is the, is the better option? Right? We have a dispute in the Gemara, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and, and Rabbi Yishmael. What should we do? So Abaya comes along. Abaya is an Amora, and he sums it up. Although there is room for both opinions, many have acted in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yishmael and combined working for a living and learning Torah. 
And although they engaged in activities other than the study of Torah, were successful in their Torah study. Many have acted in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and were not successful in their Torah study. They were ultimately forced to abandon their Torah study altogether. Okay. Now, there's no question. Go ahead. I just wanted to ask something. Um, in, the, in the Torah, I thought it was written the two tribes, I think Zvolun and Issachar maybe, they had some kind of a, a deal, right? Uh, they will work, they will, and the other ones will learn the Torah. And with the 12 tribes, you have also Levi and the rest of the tribes, right? So can't we have some kind of a combination like that rather than individuals that have to combine work and Torah study? That's an interesting idea. I, th I think there's, there's an element to that also. <clears throat> but you have to recognize also as an individual, thinking to myself as an individual, what should I be doing, right? I have to earn a living. I have to provide for my family, but I also have to learn Torah. What do I do, right? It's not always so simple to go find someone else to, to split the responsibilities with you, right? But as an individual, what's the best way to, to approach this question? Maybe also this is talking about after, I mean, this is definitely talking about after the 10 tribes were already exiled. Maybe the Jewish people are, we were talking about an exile attitude. I'm not sure, I hear, I hear the question. Why couldn't that be a possibility? But I think like this, everyone agrees that there are unique select individuals who are able to reach such a high level that they don't have to do any material pursuits and everything will be taken care of for them. Right? The, the Gemara tells us a famous story where Rava, Rava was in charge of the, of the like dispensing the charity. And someone came to him who was a, a, a dependent on charity. And he comes to him and he says, I would like enough money for supper. And he gives him money for supper. Not that much money. He says, it's not so much money. He says, that's enough money to pay for, you know, bread and butter and water and it's charity. He's like, no, I need enough to pay for uh, fatted goose and old wine. And Rava says, excuse me, like, this is not the way to treat the charity person. He's like, you're not giving me charity. God is providing for me. God is my father. God will take care of me. Rava says, you're crazy. While they're having this conversation, Rava's sister comes in who has not seen him in 20 years, does not come to visit, okay? They didn't see each other as often those days. They had, didn't have Zoom either. So Rava's sister comes in to visit and she says, I decided to bring you something. I brought you a fatted goose and old wine. And Rava says, I take it back. God is providing for you. Clearly this is meant to be, right? Clearly indeed, for whatever reason, I don't understand the, the nature of your relationship with God, but this is meant for you. Okay, he gives it to him. And I, I think I've told you guys the story in the past, but there are people even today who have that relationship. Where these are unique individuals. I told you about this fellow who's, um, who lives in Israel, um, who, who when he needs money, he literally goes to the payit. He goes to the, the kiosk, the lottery scratch-off kiosk, and he, he spends $1, he buys whatever he, he buys one ticket, and he gets exactly what he needs, right? So even today, we have people like that who don't need to pursue the spiritual. They are very, very unique individuals. And everybody agrees that that's a possibility. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai is on a very, very high level. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai thinks that this is a possibility for others. Rabbi Yishmael is telling him that the general basis of how we approach this question is, we have to recognize that it's possible to do both. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai says, it's not really possible to do both. It's one or the other, right? And if it's one or the other, well, you can't end up just pursuing the material. So rather just pursue the spiritual, let God take care of the material. But Rabbi Shmuel says, no, it's possible to pursue both. Parenthetically, 
Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai famously went into the cave with his son, Rabbi Eliezer, right? For while they were hiding from the Romans for many years. And they lived completely supported in a miraculous existence where there was a carob tree, right? Carob tree grew next to them in the cave. And they had a well that sprung up next to them in this cave. And they didn't leave the cave. They just studied Torah straight. Or I believe it was 12 years straight. Okay. So Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai lived this incredibly elevated life. Now, when they leave that cave, they come out of the cave and they're on this huge, very, very high level. And the Roman emperor who wanted their death, the Roman governor who wanted their death has now passed away. And they leave this cave. And they look around and they see the entire world is involved in pursuing the material. And they, wherever they look, they're so angry that they're not involved in pursuing the spiritual and connecting to God. And wherever they look, it's like a, you know, a, a Marvel Universe type of thing, wherever they look, Everything gets, the fields are on fire. And they burn down just from where they're looking at it. So a heavenly voice comes out and says, go back into the cave. You haven't yet reached the, high, the highest level. They go back into the cave. They come back out of the cave the next week. And it's Friday afternoon. Next, next year. It's Friday afternoon. And Rabbi Shimon Yechai now says, you know what? I realize what's going on over here. His son, Rabbi Eliezer, is still furious. He's ready to look everywhere and burn things down. And they see a fellow rushing. It's Friday afternoon. He's rushing, and he has some myrtle branches in his hands, some hadassim. And he says to him, where are you going? He says, it's almost Shabbos. I need the hadassim for Shabbos. You have to have hadassim for Shabbos. You take the hadassim and have that delicious smell pervading the house. It really enhances my Shabbos environment. Hashem Yechai says, you see, even when the people are working the material, they're only working the material so as to elevate the spiritual. And therefore, they then come to this new understanding that it's possible. So perhaps this statement of Rabbi Shimon and Yechai is taking place before he comes to the newfound understanding that you can do both. Okay? So but either way, Abaya says, you can't, we have to do the, don't try to do the opinion of Rabbi Shimon and Yechai because it doesn't work for most people. Rather, try to do the opinion of Rabbi Yishmael. And hopefully, hopefully you'll be able to find the time to also learn Torah. You will not be exclusively focused on the material and not find the actual time for studying Torah as well. Similarly, Rava said to the sages who would attend the study hall, I implore you, during the months of Nisan and Tishrei, the crucial agricultural periods, do not appear before me. Engage in your agricultural work then so that you will not be preoccupied with your sustenance all year. In other words, he also said, there should be time periods. Rava obviously held that there are these great sages who are learning Torah. And Rava told them, listen, don't tell me you're just going to learn Torah the entire year straight, 12 months a year, and just ignore the time periods of the harvest and the time periods of the, of the planting. Just ignore it. Don't worry about it. God will take care. No, no, don't do that. If you work during those set time periods, you'll be able to sustain yourself from that work so that you can study Torah the rest of the year. Once again, Rabbi is speaking to even the sages. And he's saying that even the sages, you're going to have to work a little bit to provide yourself, to provide for yourself so that you can learn the rest of it. <coughs> okay, so what we're bringing out from this Gemara is the concept of it is a known quantity that we need to be able to earn a living, but we need to also be able to spend time on spiritual pursuits as well. And that's why we switch from the plural for the rain that will be provided for all of you and for the love that all of us are obligated in Hashem to what our individual requirement is. So the, the, to sum up the idea, the way I was always taught in yeshiva is like this, the higher level that you are on in terms of your emuna, in terms of your bitachon, in terms of your belief, 
and your steadfast belief that Hashem provides for us, the less work you have to put in to produce. Why is that so? So to finish that Ramban that we were talking about earlier, that Hashem created a system of rain that we don't think of as miraculous, that the mana is falling, we think of as miraculous. The Ramban says like this, why did God create this system in the first place? Why can't everything be like mana? Why can we not have a situation in which we don't have a physical explanation for the rain falling? That would be better. If you wanted to have better belief, what would be better for your belief system? If we have no way to explain rain falling, and every morning we go outside and we're like, there's water on our doorstep. How is that possible? That would be better for our belief system. And Aban says, precisely, it would be better. That's not what Hashem wants. Hashem wants us to have a challenge. He wants us to be lifting weights, right? To becoming stronger. If it would be very easy for us to believe without any, any doubt, then that wouldn't help us. That wouldn't be a challenge. So we have a situation in which we have the ability to try to, ability not to try, but ability to think that everything is coming from our own handiwork. That is possible for us to believe. Since it is possible for us to believe that, we are then challenged to recognize that really it comes from God, we do have to put in some level of effort. The level that you are on, if you reach a level of Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, you don't see a difference between rain falling and mana falling. I, don't, I see right through the, the screen, right? You know, the Wizard of Oz is behind the screen. I see right through the screen. I recognize that it's all coming from God. Whether I can explain it on a physical level, whether I can go through earth science and then explain or biology and explain what's happening here, not relevant to me. I know that this is all really God. Some of it from behind the screen through the rules of nature that God set in place and some of it directly. So for Rabbi Shimon Yechai, there's no need for God to operate from behind the scene. I see through the scene, the screen. So why do, why do you need to operate from behind the scene? There's no reason for that. Does that make sense? So the way I was always taught in yeshiva and this is really based on the, a book that is called the, um, the Chovos Halavavos, right? The obligations of the heart, the duties of the heart. The way I was taught is that the level of belief that you reach in God, to the extent that you reach a high level of belief, you could diminish the amount of work that you have to put in. So it should be like almost, um, like a ramp almost right it's like a graph that you can draw and not always is it going to go straight up you know towards belief right sometimes you go down sometimes you go back up sometimes you go down sometimes you go back up but as you get to a higher and higher level of belief in Hashem you kind of recognize that the results that you get are not always based on the input and to the extent that you recognize that the results are not based on the input like I said you eliminate the need for God to put up that screen to trick us into thinking that he's not really there. He doesn't need to trick us because we know he's there. If you know fully, fully cognizant of the fact that he's there at all times and he is providing for us, there's no need to have any sort of, uh, you know, obfuscation. There's no need to have a, a screen. There's no need to try to fool us into thinking that perhaps he's not really there. Okay. So that, that's the, I think the, the summation of this idea of how exactly we're supposed to develop a, a sense of belief and, and also work with a proper amount of work. Okay. I have a okay. question. Go okay. ahead. Um, so every rabbi I've ever heard all my life says God wants us to work and God wants us to study Torah, but there needs to be a balance. You do, you, you must find time to study Torah, but you have to work. 
and um, they sh they always show you you know Talmudic um, excerpts to to cite citations to sh show that. But um, this Monday, for the first time, I attended um, a lecture. Now the person who led it was not a rabbi, but was seemed to be pretty knowledgeable about Talmud. So first, um, there were four excerpts that said, you know, God wants us to work. But then there's one from Talmud Ta'anit 21a that says um, these uh, three rabbis decided to get a job and the angel wanted to kill them because they're doing something too worldly. And um, they so they decided they better stop working to study Torah. I don't know. It, it made the uh, assumption that studying Torah and working for a living are mutually exclusive. We know they're not, but um, it well, so I, I think I think once again, I think let's go back to that first source. That's what I was trying to make the point. That I, I, it's a difficult idea. But everyone agrees that there are unique individuals in each generation who are on the level of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, not literally on his level, but on the level of following his pursuit. What Abayah says is, Many have acted in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai and only studied Torah and were not successful in their Torah study. He doesn't say all. He doesn't say cool. Call ha'oseh ke Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai are not successful. That he doesn't say. Because there are unique individuals who are on a level in which they indeed are supposed to be operating like Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai. Okay. Those are unique. Those are unique individuals. Those are not the, the majority, right? So, so the uh, so the three rabbis in this uh, story about the angel are um, they're they're not supposed to be an example for the rest of us. Exactly, we're supposed to be operating like Rabbi oh, Yisrael, okay. and we're supposed to be making time for learning Torah and time for earning a living as well. Okay, now thank you. Welcome. Okay, so it says v'yasafta diganacha piresh chaviyetzaracha. There's something really, really beautiful that a little bit of a tangent, but I want to share with you from Rabbi Schwab. Okay. Rabbi Schwab says, if you look at the idea, these three things, the grain, the wine, and the oil, these three things have a very unique power. Let's look first at this Talmudic source, Brachot. The Talmud tells us something interesting about human or child development, okay? The Talmud says, and it's really in the context of a fascinating conversation, you guys should check it out later, about what was the actual uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge, okay? But what it, the Talmud points out very parenthetically, a child does not know how to call his father and mother until he tastes the taste of grain. What does that mean? That means that for brain development, you need to have start eating grain so as to put together a certain levels of knowledge so as to be able to start your, your neurons are growing, your brain needs certain types of food. One of those foods are it needs to taste grain. And if it tastes grain, you start eating grain, then you start developing at a faster clip. That is not to say that someone who is gluten-free will never figure out how to call his mother and father. I'm not saying that. But what the Talmud is pointing out is it's not just a coincidence that it happens to be about at the time period that they start eating solid grain that they start calling their father and mother by their name. They, their brain is developing based on, also based on the fact that they're eating this type of food. Now, so grain really brings what we would call in Hebrew, da'as, or knowledge, right? Now, if you think of brain, of grain bringing da'as, or knowledge, 
Well, how much more so would the grain from Israel, from the land of Israel, bring das or knowledge? Why is that so? The grain from Israel goes through a process. It goes through the process of having the truma, the miser, right? The tithes are taken from it. They're given to the priest. They're given to the Levite. They're given to the poor person. You take care of the tithes. You take care of the challah, the, the percentage of the finished product of the, of the dough that you take and give to the priest, right? So it, it goes through a lot of purification along its process. That type of grain, when you eat that grain, it's going to help develop your mind at an even higher level. So digancha is the grain that will help you develop the, the dugan, the grain from Eretz Yisrael, from the land of Israel, that will develop your mind in a completely mind-blowing way. Then we have the tiroshcha, the, the, the wine. The wine is the wine from which the nesachim, from which the libations that are brought on the mezbeach, on the altar, they are poured out on the altar daily basis, libations of wine that comes from the wine from Israel. We know, wine gladdens the heart of man, right? That's a verse in Psalms. If wine gladdens the heart of man, how much more so the wine from Israel? The wine from Israel is on a higher level. It's on a mere pure level. It is a holier object. And therefore, it certainly gladdens the heart of man. And then what we have is Yitzharecha, your oil. It refers to, what do you do with the olive oil in Israel? You bring it as part of the menachos, part of the pan offerings, right? The grain offerings that we bring. And you bring it as in the menorah. So the oil in Israel stands for, it's the apex, the, not the primary, but the best possible use you can do with it is to help for the temple service and specifically for the menorah. What does the menorah stand for? It stands for the light of Torah. We always compare, we say Torah or v'ner mitzvah. Ner mitzvah the Torah are the light. A, can, um, a mitzvah is akin to a candle, and the Torah is akin to like a great light. We've discussed this in the past also. So Schwab says these three items, the grain from Israel gives you das. The wine from Israel gives you simcha. And the oil from Israel gives you the light of Torah. It says like this. You know something fascinating? It says in the Torah, it says at the beginning of the Torah, and right at the beginning, it says that right? and the land started bringing up its desha. The desha means like the things that are growing on the land. What is that a reference to? So Schwab says desha is a reference to, if you think about it, dalit shin aleph, right? Dalit shin aleph stands for das simcha or the land can produce these three different physical items that taken in a proper context and eaten with a proper understanding will bring to you a higher elevated level of das, will bring to you a higher elevated level of simcha, of joy, and will bring to you a higher level of Torah understanding, a physical experience. What does that mean? How does the physical experience, the physical food that you're eating, how does that have such an impact in who you are? So actually, what's interesting is when we make an alhamichya, when we make an after blessing on eating, from these types of, of food, we actually say that Hashem has granted us the land of Israel so that we can rejoice with the food from the land of Israel. Rejoice with the food from the land of Israel? Like seriously, that's, a, that's why you're supposed to have the land of Israel so you rejoice with the food? I think what we have to understand is that 
it gets back to the first conversation that we're having about involvement in the physical world as opposed to involvement in the spiritual world. We all have to eat. If you don't eat, you die, right? But when we eat, if we eat and we take foods and we use this food to help us serve Hashem in the proper context and in the sense that this is helping us serve Hashem, and we take all types of foods, we take grains, we take wine, we take oil, and we use it to serve Hashem. Now, to serve Hashem doesn't only mean when you take the libation and you pour it on the altar. It doesn't only mean when you're lighting the menorah. It's not the only type of serving Hashem that we can do. When we're going about our daily business and we're attempting to do the will of Hashem, we can take the material and we can elevate it. We can turn it into a completely different thing. It's not just eating food. It's eating food for the sake of serving Hashem. Eating food for the sake of having energy for serving Hashem, that is a different type of eating. That is a food that's going to help us fuel ourselves for serving Hashem. And that is something which indeed will completely change who we are. In the land of Israel, where the food is holier, it can change us even more. And that's why we say thank you, Hashem, for giving us the food. But it really is a reference as standing to the entire physical world that we live in, that we have the ability to elevate through our actions. And so too, when it comes to taking the physical, when it comes to involving ourselves in the material, it's a similar idea. We can involve ourselves in the material world and we can earn a living, right? Earn a living, you're supposed to. We all are supposed to do what Rabbi Yishmael taught. We're supposed to be earning a living and also learning Torah, right? We're learning Torah primary and then also learning a living and then also earning a living, I should say. But when we earn a living, are we earning a living because we are just focused, hyper-focused on our retirement account growing and getting the right investments? Are we hyper-focused on, on being able to purchase the newest Tesla? Is that why we're earning a living? Or are we earning a living so that we have the free time and we have the mind space and the sense of serenity, security, stability that allows us to pursue the spiritual? Because if that's why you're earning a living, you have fulfilled the dictum of Rabbi Yishmael. And there's nothing better that we can do today than to do that. So I think that's the idea of why there's this focus on the fruits, why this focus on the reward is going to be in the fruits. Is that really the focus? The reward should be spiritual. No, you're missing the point. We're in this world to elevate the physical. We're in this world to be able to take the physical pursuits, but only when we're doing it with a proper intent, then we fulfill our obligation. Then we fulfill our potential. We involve ourselves in the physical, but only to help us in our service, ultimately, of the, of the spiritual. And we don't make the mistake of thinking that the physical pursuits is the be-all and end-all of our existence in this world. Okay, that's what I want to say. Okay, very yeah. good. Take care, everyone. Thanks, okay. everyone. Shabbat shalom. Shalom.